Hi folks, Ann Milgram here. We have a special episode for you today. I'll be speaking with my friend, Andrew Weissman. A veteran of the Justice Department, he most recently served as a top prosecutor in the Office of Special Counsel, Robert Mueller. He writes about that experience in a forthcoming book titled, Where Law Ends, Inside the Mueller Investigation. I'm excited that he joins me today as we have much to discuss from all the recent news to a look back at his extraordinary career. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Great to be here, Anne. Let's start. So you and I have known each other for a long time, and I'll just, I always like to to front that. I think we met when you were running the Enron investigation, when we were both at the Department of Justice. I remember that as just as well. And you were, I think, heading off to the Eastern District of New York, where I had been a prosecutor for many, many years. And a mutual friend had us over for dinner, which I think was the first home-cooked meal I'd had in about two years of working on Enron. I think that's right. And I think I cooked dinner. Is that right? Of course you did. Because one thing that I'm not (laughs) sure everyone, I've listened to you religiously, but I'm not sure it's come up that you are a fantastic cook. I mean, it's scary. Thank you. That's very kind. I make a lot of chicken fingers and french fries right now for my (laughs) six-year-old. So yeah, so we met years ago. This is going back to 2004, 2005, I would guess. Yeah. And I want to start today with the special counsel work that you that you completed, but then I want to sort of work backwards in some of the other parts of your career. And there's so much for us to talk about, but let's just jump in. And, and I'm really curious to know, I think a lot of listeners won't understand that when you joined the special counsel, Robert Mueller's team, you were sitting at the Department of Justice running the fraud section at that moment in time. The administration changed. Uh, President Trump was elected in 2016. You stayed for a period of time beyond that. Is that right? Yep, that's exactly right. So the the fraud section is part of Maine Justice. So it's part of the Department of Justice. It's located principally in Washington, and it's part of the criminal division. And just like there are United States attorneys that do criminal prosecutions and civil prosecutions around the country, the fraud section does white-collar investigations based out of Washington, D.C. And when did when did you join the Mueller team exactly? When did you join the special counsel's team? So it was the, I think, the first week of June 2017. So you'd stayed in the Trump administration at DOJ for about almost six months. And then how do you get to the how do you get to the special counsel's office? Well, I had worked with the director twice before that. I had been the special counsel. And let me just let me just be clear that the director means Robert Mueller because he was the director of the FBI. So I'll tell you a funny story about that. So, you know, when you're in the United States Attorney's Office, everybody is Ann and Bob and Matt and all first names, including the United States Attorney. So I show up the first time at the FBI as Director Mueller's special counsel. And of course, Director Mueller is like, just call me Bob. And the first time I called him Bob in front of special agents of the FBI, daggers were coming out of people's eyes. (laughs) It's a very hierarchical institution. And so I've trained myself for two years when I was the general counsel and when I was special counsel for six months, that you just say director, Director Mueller, no matter what Bob might want to say. So even when you were in the special counsel's office, did you still refer to him as the director? I joked with Aaron Zebley, who was also at the FBI with me, that we just couldn't do it. We could not switch to saying Bob, even though other people did. And Aaron Zebley, was, he was both at the FBI and he was also on the special counsel's yes, team. He, he and I had the same trajectory. And we just could not bring ourselves. So with, I think at some point we were saying the man formerly known as the director. <laughs> what did everybody else refer to Robert Mueller as when he was special counsel? Sir. On the special counsel team, sir. Okay. And then if you were in conversations with them, how would you, like, would they refer to him as Bob or as the director? It's funny. It, re- it reminds me of when I did a case against the, the boss of the Genovese family who had a rule about not using his name. People just avoided the, the name issue. So it was basically Sir, the boss, <laughs> occasionally the director. Also like Harry Potter. Yes, Where you don't exactly. say the name. Although in a different way, the opposite. But just to be clear, Bob Muller 
would have been perfectly happy to have everyone, whether it's at the FBI or in the special counsel, to refer, you know, referring to him as Bob. So you start in June. What's your official role there? There were three principal teams to do the investigation. There wasn't very imaginative in terms of the names of the teams. There was Team R, Team M, as in Mary, and Team 600. And Team R stood for Russia. Team M stood for Manafort, which was basically everything Russia except everything related to Team M. So it was sort of a carve-out. And then Team 600 referred to the part of the internal Department of Justice regulation that allowed us to investigate obstruction. So uh, the whole Manafort prosecution came under Team M. Which team were you part of? Sorry, I was uh, the head of Team M. Okay, who is the team head of Team R? Uh, Jeannie Ree. Okay, and Team 600? Jim Quarles. Got it. And and the cases that are brought against Roger Stone, Michael Flynn, where did they fall? So Roger Stone was a Team R case, and Flynn had his own separate person. So it didn't fall into any of the three buckets. There are obviously, in all of these, there's overlap. So you can develop proof and witnesses and lines of of evidence that fall into multiple buckets. And then obviously, just like any other case that you and I have done, you know, you coordinate. So there were there were two Manafort cases, right? The first was tried in the Eastern District of Virginia by Greg Andres, who was a colleague of yours also in the Eastern District. The second was going to be tried in D.C. And I think who would have tried the second case in D.C.? The first case, Greg was on it, but we also had a a team of really great agents and two other prosecutors who are all part of Team M. And then the second case was going to be Jeannie and me. And there's sort of a long story about how that happened and the strategy behind it. But that was the second trial that was about four weeks after the verdict in the first trial. And and that's the case that Manafort ultimately pled guilty on. Exactly. So you didn't go to trial. Exactly. How did it come to pass that the Eastern District case went first? The Eastern District of Virginia is known as the rocket docket. It's something that when I became a defense lawyer, seemed very unfair to me. <laughs> but when you're a prosecutor, it seems kind of great. And what a rocket docket means is that upon indictment, the court sets, in general, a very fast trial date. So even though the Eastern District of Virginia case was indicted second, it went to trial first because of that rocket docket. Got it. So one of the things I noticed is there hasn't been that much written about the sort of offices themselves of the special counsel. And I assume that was intentional, that during the time that the work was happening, you didn't want people to be sort of publishing your address, waiting outside, you know, that you wanted to have some privacy. But can you describe for us a little bit of, you know, just take us just take us through a day. You know, you get to the office. What does the office look like? In my mind, I picture it as like a fancy law firm office, but I also, my first job in the Manhattan DA's office and also parts of the Eastern District were not like a fancy law firm. So I just, I want to get a sense of what it was like there. So I think people may have a sense that when you work in the government, it may look like the private sector. And that's so far from the truth. This was no different than any other office I was at. When I first started as a prosecutor, I went from a law firm in Manhattan and I suddenly was in what used to be a broom closet in the basement of the courthouse in the Eastern District of New York. You could barely fit a table, a lamp, and a chair in there. The, the furniture was built by prisoners, part of Unicor, so it wasn't the sort of high-grade quality. Even though your surroundings weren't luxurious you know, to say the least, I was also never happier. So it really is divorced from those kinds of physical trappings. And the same thing was true in the special counsel's office. Uh, We ended up eventually having the floor of a building on the south side of the mall in Washington. Which is pretty close to the Department of Justice. Pretty close, but on the other side of the mall. And the location was called Patriots Plaza. I'd like to think that that was appropriately located and housed. And pretty soon after we got there, the press, because they followed everybody constantly, there were CNN reporters who, one of whom I felt so sorry for, he's 
job was sitting outside of our garage watching our cars come in and out all day long. Just to be able to say who came in and who came out. But but there wasn't a lot. There were not pictures. I mean, I don't remember seeing pictures of Robert Mueller going in and out of the office every day. Is that right? Or If you drove in, there would not be pictures. But if you walked outside for lunch, they would have pictures. Um, defense lawyers would be photographed. Witnesses could be photographed. We had ways to get witnesses in without having to go through that. So how did you do that? Because I was just thinking, I mean, people may not, who are listening, not everyone may understand, but this was, this is unusual compared to, you've had a lot of high profile cases, but, you know, in a high profile case, like you really don't want the media guessing like who's the next cooperator. And they could guess that if they knew like, oh, so-and-so's defense lawyer was in every day this week. So how would you figure that out? So um, that did happen from time to time. And I can give you one example of something that was worse, which was when I worked on the Enron investigation, the press was allowed to sit outside of the grand jury because the grand jury was in the federal courthouse. And so we were unable to put any single witness in the grand jury without the press being able to see who was going in and out and their and who their lawyer was, he or she. So every cooperator would be known, Every cooperator, but also, I mean, just every witness, every witness yeah. even if they weren't cooperating. And that also, I mean, I've been a defense lawyer um, as of you, and it's really so unfair to subject them to that kind of intense media glare it's obviously not great for an investigation, and it leads to all sorts of wild speculation as to what's going on. So, as I mentioned, there was a parking garage in the building so that you could drive into the building. And so, if witnesses were brought into or out of the building, they could go in that way. And because the building itself was not open to the public, the press couldn't get into the garage to see who the witnesses were, who were coming in and out. So that was one way of of keeping this a little bit more confidential. As you know, Bob Mueller was absolutely clear about keeping everything as tightly held as possible. Yeah, he's a guy who strikes me as would never leak or allow his team to leak. And so it feels like absolutely just the worst thing to someone like him. So I assume he was in the office every day. You were in the office. I, I can't remember exactly how many how many lawyers were on the special counsel team. So ultimately, there were about 17 lawyers and many, many more agents and analysts and then some support staff. Who's the first one in the office in the morning? Was it you? Uh, no. So as as you know, and it's, it's nice of you to ask that question, Anne. That's facetious. Because as you know, I'm an inveterate New Yorker, or at least before I spent 10 years of my life in Washington. Washington, I used to be able to say I was an inveterate New Yorker. So I'm used to keeping New York hours, which for your audience means that you sort of come in late, but you stay very late. So typical New Yorker. It's very cultural in New York. You might get in between nine and 10 and and leave also between nine and 10. For the special counsel, I didn't do that. I would would be in by 8, 830. uh, And then I tried to stay as late as necessary. I mean, that could be depending on what's going on, 11 or 12 at night. But I can I can say Director Mueller was always there before I was. And how about the agents? Usually in my experience, they're the ones that get there the first. Crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, it's like, I like don't know when you're sleeping. In the morning. Like, yeah. they, they could be there at 5 a.m. for all I know. But I, I, when I got shut up, the agents were all there busy. So I know I know we're not going to talk about the inside of the investigation. And obviously, I hope all the listeners will understand. And at this moment, everybody's saying, ah, oh. <laughs> but, but but there are a couple of things I think are worth just sort of touching on. I mean, at some point you're sitting in the office and the president of the United States starts tweeting about you. And really, there, it's not just you. There was just a huge amount of criticism that was directed at the Mueller team and at the investigation from the president. And just really curious to know, sir, what does that feel like? I mean, you and I have both, you've handled a ton of high-profile cases. You've done Enron, you've prosecuted very serious mob cases. This felt different to me and sort of, but I, I want to hear from you. What was that like? One of the things that when you're a lawyer, you usually don't think of yourself as part of the story. You have a client and you are advocating for that client, whether you're a defense lawyer or whether you work for the United States government. And I still remember the very first time that I personally 
was attacked or, you know, sort of tried to be part of the story. And that was when I, I started as a young lawyer in the organized crime and racketeering section in, in the Brooklyn U.S. Attorney's Office. And that's a standard part of uh, defense strategy, which is to attack the prosecution. And by the way, I'm not in any way denigrating that. That's that's just what happens. And it's very uncomfortable at first. So I think that was in some ways very good training in developing a tough exterior and that outer shell. Enron obviously took that to a very different level. And then when I thought that was the worst I would ever have to be subjected to. And obviously this was a level more than that. And I guess the only thing I can say is my initial reaction, other than feeling this incredibly queasy feeling in the pit of your stomach, is I just was thinking, you know, I'm such a nobody. (laughs) Doesn't the president of the United States have something better to be doing with his time than, than engaging in that kind of behavior? One thing I noticed when I went back and read some of the articles announcing that you were joining the Mueller team is that almost every single one called you a legal bulldog. Pitbull. Which is just a Pitbull. really... Pitbull. Sorry, sorry, sorry. You've got, you've got to I'm work on your... my dog. You have to work on your... your, your uh, I don't have a dog. No, you, you I do. do. So I'm going to... I'm very, gonna, very I'm gonna focused on your... breeds. <laughs> okay, so Mr. Pitbull. <laughs> So that's also, I mean, what was your, what, how did that feel? So, you know, it's really interesting. The, um, of course, you know, everyone's the hero of their own novel. So I don't really think of myself as a pit bull. But I have to say one thing that's useful about that is it's really kind of useful for defense counsel and witnesses to think you are a pit bull, even if I you're bet. not, because it's useful for them to think that, you know, you're going to be sort of, you know, over the top and aggressive and, and. Uh, you know, completely on top of of um, the facts. I, I tend to think I'm really, really meticulous, and I'm also as uh, kind of a dog with a bone, just to continue the the metaphor. But it, you know, that's something where I think that's a trope, and I think there can be a variety of reasons for it. But it it does have its benefits. Yeah, no, I could see that, and persistence is obviously often synonymous with thinking about somebody as a pit bull as well. Not to contrast this too much, but you know, all this press is about you as a pit bull. At some point, the press does a freedom of information request for your calendar, which in my view does not show you as much of a pit bull as someone who attends potlucks and moots within the office. And so let's just talk about this for a second and birthday celebrations. First of all, I've never seen the media actually go after, it was a conservative organization actually. So it wasn't the media, but there's a, it was a freedom of information request done by, I I think, I think it was the American Conservative Union, but it was one of the conservative organizations. And so you had to go through your calendar. This all gets released eventually publicly. And aside from the fact that I didn't know you liked potlucks, um, I would say that like the thing that I was struck by and wanted to just spend a minute on were the moots that you were doing before arguments. And so can you explain a little bit, again, not the substance, but just what's the process you were going through and why did you do, what's a moot and why did you do them? Before I just answer that directly, let me just, the freedom. Yeah. You want to, you want to answer the potluck? Yeah, exactly. Oh, no. Cause that's, that's like really throwing down the gauntlet. <laughs> you know, this, this wasn't summer camp and there wasn't a lot of team building exercises, but around certain key holidays, there would be a potluck. One thing that the Freedom of Information Act requires is that when you're in the government, you have to turn over any and all communications, notes, calendars, anything. And so I had to go back. But nothing related to the, inter- just so people know, nothing related to the internal investigation, that's secretive, but like there, as long as it doesn't reveal something related to the inner workings of the case, is that is that sort of? There are certain exceptions, but if you have appointments with people, I remember there was on my calendar, it would say haircut. You know, I had to go through four years of calendar entries. And it, you know, it comes from a very good place. I mean, the point of FOIA is to have uh, transparency in government. And, you know, many of your listeners, I think, would think, particularly right now, that is a very, very useful yeah, statute. Exactly. So even though on an individual basis, it's a pain in the butt <laughs> to go through all of that. What did you bring to the potlucks? Do you have a potluck dish? So you have to remember, I, I really am not a cook like you. So let me just think what I brought. Oh, yeah. So I brought, this is going to be just pathetic. So you're going to start laughing, but I would drop my dog off at his doggy daycare 
and there was a liquor store right next to it. So I would get sodas and, you know, tonic water and things like that. I can't remember if we ever had alcohol. And I don't think we did because our office, almost all of the office was a skiff. So you can't have that. Can you just explain what a skiff is? It's like sensitive, compartmentalized information facility. And our entire office, except for the lunchroom and one conference room and two bathrooms, were inside a skiff. And that meant that it, it was like going back to the 1970s because you had to leave outside every electronic device. So we all started wearing watches. We couldn't bring in iPhones, Fitbits, laptops, iPads, anything like that couldn't go inside. And so we all stayed in that area. So like you come into the office, you drop all that stuff, and then you would go inside the skiff, or you'd be in the lunchroom where you could have access to the devices. Exactly. And so if you needed to check your personal email, you know, everyone would be huddled in the kitchen space by the window, which was the one area where you could get some reception. So you brought soda and tonic. One last question on this. What did Robert Mueller bring to the potluck? Himself. (laughs) He he didn't bake or or cook for the potluck. No. No. Yeah. Okay. So tell us about the, the moots. You know, we had, in addition to the three teams that I mentioned, we had a legal team that was led by the phenomenal Michael Dreben, who had, was taking, like me, was was on detail from Maine Justice, though I was just coming from the fraud section. He was coming from this, the Solicitor General's office. And he basically has overseen every criminal appeal to the Supreme Court in like the last 25 years. And then he had three people as part of that team. And they were so meticulous. They argued everything that was certainly in the Court of Appeals and a few things that were short level in addition to doing lots of legal work. And so, for instance, there was a series of motions in the Manafort case that they argued and each person would have a certain issue. And so we would do practice moots, which, you know, as you know, that that's pretty common in Court of Appeals arguments. It's, it's, unheard of not to have them at the Supreme Court level. But at the district court level, where, you know, you and I have practiced, it's a little bit more rough and tumble. That's not how they approach things. I mean, everything was thought through. It was just remarkable how how thorough they were. And did you do moots for opening statements or closing statements in the cases that went to trial? But that's that's pretty yeah. typical. So this is something only happened to, at the Department of Justice. When I was in the DA's office, we never did a moot on anything. And I think it's such, you, you often really, you don't have time, but then I got to DOJ and it was really the practice that everyone had to get up and practice their opening statement, their closing argument, and get feedback from the team. And Preet and I talk a lot when we do Cafe Insider about lawyering and how important it is to just you know, do the work and practice and work hard. And so I was, I was, I found it really interesting to see all this in your, in your calendar that people think of you all as such elite lawyers and you are in the special counsel's office, but there's something I think really important about the fact that you're doing it just to make sure you have all this opportunity to practice and get input from one another. I I really like that. So that's one of the luxuries of of being at the federal level um, is that you have more time. Uh, You have a much lighter caseload in general. And so you have the time and the luxury to do that. And that's not to take anything away from ADAs. I remember when I was starting out, I realized I just, I just couldn't be an ADA because it just, I don't have that kind of personality to be able to deal with that volume. You know, I just don't get comfortable unless I sort of feel very, very on top of everything. And so I think it takes an incredible skill set to be a really good ADA because the volume, frankly, on the prosecution and the defense side is so staggering that you really have to be able to juggle in a way that you don't usually have to do or certainly not. It's not as comparable on the federal level. So what now that the the investigations ended some time ago, the special counsel's office sort of shut down, but the cases continued. And then in the past couple of weeks, I mean, we've seen 
a number of things happened. We've seen the president commute the sentence of Roger Stone right before he was about to go in for to serve his sentence after he was convicted by a jury. We saw Paul Manafort being released from incarceration. And I think it's worth noting that because he did not fit the BOP guidelines. And so, you know, the Bureau of Prisons released a lot of folks, but there were certain guidelines they put out. Manafort did not fall within those, but he was released anyway. And we can we can talk about you know, obviously, I think it's important that no one be in a position of being exposed to COVID and getting sick, but there are still, there's a process that they set out that they didn't follow with Manafort. And then obviously, Michael Flynn's case, Attorney General Barr moved to have that case dismissed. And so, you know, if I think about this all together, there's just been a real, I want I want you to describe how you feel about it, but I, I sort of see it as it's all part of one effort by the the current Department of Justice and the Attorney General Bill Barr to take action related to the special counsel. But how do you how do you view this? So as as you noted at the outset, because of the pre-publication review process, I, I have limits on what I can say about what happened of substance during the special counsel, but that doesn't apply to your question, which is really what happened afterwards. The way I view this is a question of unequal justice and I'll give you a sort of silly example. Paul Manafort was charged after we prosecuted him twice. He was charged by the Manhattan DA's office. And he was moved from his federal prison to New York. And one of the first acts of the deputy attorney general was to intercede on his behalf to have him housed not in the local New York prison, where Absolutely, the conditions are not as good by all accounts as a federal prison to have him housed in a federal prison. In and of itself, that is wonderful. I mean, there's no reason that prisoners should be subjected to, you know, bad treatment in prison. And having a policy of having people stay in federal custody would be great if it applied to everyone. It'd be nice to know that that applied to every drug-dealing defendant, every African-American defendant, every Latino defendant. But this was treatment that was being accorded somebody who was politically connected. And I think it's a a small microcosm of the problem. And the, the Roger Stone sentencing submission that led to the four prosecutors, wonderful, wonderful career servants withdrawing from the case, one of them withdrawing and and resigning from the department altogether, was exactly that, that it had nothing to do with what the ultimate sentence should be. It was that those attorneys followed the Department of Justice guidelines about the sentence and how to apply them. And the judges know that. The judges every single day see submissions where the government is taking consistent, uniform positions, which is, when you think about it, it goes to the heart of what you want our Justice Department to be, that that, that you're, you're going to treat likes alike. That's, I think, the basis of the Aristotelian notion of justice, and that it shouldn't matter on race, it shouldn't matter on class, it shouldn't matter on gender, and it certainly shouldn't matter if you're politically connected. So that is how I see this, which is that there needs to make, if you're going to do this, and if the attorney general is going to do this, he needs to announce a policy that is going to be applying to everyone. Yeah. I mean, one of the things you just said, I think people may not understand what a big deal it is for someone to step off a case or to resign from the Department of Justice. And I thought a lot about this because, you know, I've been involved when I was at the Department of Justice, when I was assistant DA, when I was AG. There are times that you can legitimately disagree about what the right thing to do is. And within sentencing guidelines, one person can think you should add a two-point enhancement. Someone should feel very passionately that you shouldn't. And those are very legitimate discussions and debates, and they're within the heartland of what's fair, right? And sort of what the guidelines and the process is, that these are things you can add or cannot add, right? And so the difference here feels to me like to get to that point where you would actually step out of a case or you would resign from the department, it's just staggering to me. And it is a sign of feeling that there is just something unjust and unfair that's happening in a way that someone feels they can't personally be affiliated with 
with a matter, but it just, I, I don't think people understand like how much, like for you and I having been at the department, it just, it says so much to me that people would step off a case or step out of the department, which, you know, everyone goes because they believe you're going to be able to do justice and do the yeah, right thing. I mean, there's, there certainly are supervisors and up to the attorney general where I've disagreed with policy judgments that they've made. But unless you find that so morally repugnant, that's that's part of the job. There are going to be those kinds of disagreements. This, though, is different when it's a question of applying the law differently or ignoring clear facts to pretend they don't exist in order to get to a result. Those are things where I think you and I were both trained the same way, which is, I remember Mary Jo White, a sort of revered figure, sort of the way Robert Mueller is. She trained me that there is no opprobrium in resigning if there's something that you just can't stomach personally. And it's a, it is a difficult decision to decide what is the, the right thing to do and whether you should stay or whether you should, should resign. And I have to say, I've thought a lot about that in the last few years and, and watching Dr. Fauci you know, I think complicates that question. I, I know there are a lot of people who say you should always be willing to resign and make a statement and make sure people know what's going on. But I think, obviously, it's very fact-specific. But if you look at just how much Dr. Fauci has done and the countervailing interest, which is to try and have some influence of tethering the government's COVID response to the science you know, it makes it very hard for him to just say, well, I personally you know, find this distasteful. I'm going to resign when he can still have an effect on or hopefully have some effect on policy. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. It is also fact specific. And Dr. Fauci is, you know, sort of at the top or near the top of the department. And so I think he also is an independent microphone that he's allowed to use sometimes and is giving speeches. And so it, it does feel a little different, but, but yeah, but I, but I, but I do think you're, you're getting at the right question here, which is, you know, it's a very difficult question for somebody to, to make this step and walk out and look, you stayed in the frauds division under the Trump administration when they started, you, you chose to stay and to try to do what you could do. And so I think these are, and they're not only fact specific, but they're also, they depend on so many other, other pieces. Let's talk about Stone just for a second and sort of step out of some of the, this bigger question. You wrote a piece that I thought was really interesting saying that Stone should be hauled into the grand jury. And you cited some precedent for this, an example in Enron. And, and can you just talk us through a little bit of, you know, your thinking on that? So, you know, one of the things that you and I do in investigations is you start you know, at the bottom and you try and get people to cooperate and you try and work your way up the ladder as far as the facts will take you. And with Roger Stone, as is his right, he decided to go to trial and he decided not to cooperate. And that's fine. And there's there's no legal requirement whatsoever to cooperate. On the other hand, the government is trying to get at the truth of you know, what happened. And my point was trying to educate the public about the tools that are available to prosecutors to get at the truth. And they exist, whether somebody is convicted or acquitted, you still have the ability to put that person into the grand jury and ask them questions. Now, Roger Stone had been convicted of lying to Congress and obstructing a witness in connection with congressional testimony, among other things. And the question was, why? Why did he lie? The court in sentencing had said that he had committed the crimes to cover up for the president. And so one of the questions the government could have is, well, what's behind that? Is there is there something nefarious or or not? The grand jury can look to see whether there is um, something criminal there. With an eye toward potentially prosecuting someone else, like the president. The president or could be other people. And it's clear. Someone associated with WikiLeaks or a member of the campaign. Absolutely. So this was a way of saying, look, there still is an avenue that it's available. We had done this in the... Enron case, one of the people who turned out to be just a fantastic government witness was the former treasurer named Ben Glisson, who's a brilliant, brilliant man who had pleaded guilty and decided not to cooperate. But then we put him in the grand jury. 
And he realized at that point that he didn't want to lie and face more time for you know potentially being prosecuted for perjury. He didn't want to just refuse to testify because that itself is a crime. And so he came clean and said, look, essentially, you got me. What do you want to know? And he became one of the best witnesses. So that's all a way of saying that that may or may not be the choice that Roger Stone takes, but it doesn't mean that the government doesn't have the ability to try. And to ask the questions. Yeah. So if we if we think about all of this together, and I know we're we're sort of doing this very high level, but again, if I think about, you know, Stone, Manafort, Flynn, it feels to me like a systematic undoing of the special counsel's work, like an effort to completely undercut even the initiation of the Russia investigation, where we've seen attacks on on the FISA, some of which may be fair, some of which are certainly not part of the special counsel's work, right? But the question I sort of come to is that the Department of Justice is headed by Bill Barr right now, and his involvement, I mean, has been documented now. His involvement in the Flynn matter is very clear. His involvement in the Stone sentencing memorandums up front you know, regardless of his feelings, it was reported he was against the commutation, but he he had written in to basically talk about the the length of the sentence and sort of had his is exerting control. And so I feel like part of the conversation we need to be having is, you know, how do we protect ourselves or, you know, how do we think about this? Because it does feel to me like there was a process in the Department of Justice to have these special counsel, the special counsel appointed. And now what we see the following attorney general doing is attempting, in my view, um, and I want to know what what you think about this, really to sort of whitewash it and say, go beyond whitewashing it, actually say it wasn't legitimate, right? To sort of dismiss the Flynn case with an argument of misconduct and, and such. And so how do you think about this? And how do you think about sort of sitting here today, Bill Barr, and how we should be thinking about, you know, how do we protect America from the person who's supposed to be the head of the Department of Justice? So I remember when I was in law school, I spent a summer working at the ACLU in New York. And I remember there was a quote from Roger Baldwin saying that the Constitution is only as good as what's in the hearts of the men and women in America. And at the time, you know, I was young and I I didn't resonate with me. I was just like, what does he mean? You know, I just thought law was the answer for everything and structure was the answer for everything. And that's a long preamble to, I think that this last three years has put an enormous spotlight on how much in America, and it's fundamental to how we think of the criminal justice system and just how the government should run, is a question of norms and not a question of laws. And I I know there are lots of people working on how the system should change going forward to help protect against what's happening. But ultimately, I think those things help, but I, I don't think they're the ultimate answer. I think almost no matter what you do, the attorney, you can have a rule, for instance, that says that the White House cannot legally weigh in on an individual criminal case. As you and I know, when we were at the department, there was a norm of not doing that. There was a so-called MOU, a memorandum of understanding, where that did not happen. And people didn't weigh in on those things. But that doesn't mean the attorney general couldn't, right? So that's what's happening now is you have the attorney general and the attorney general can have a can read into what they think the president wants, and then she or he can then take action. And I think it has to be something that's so instilled in uh, in a being a red line that isn't going to have the problem we see now where it seems like one outrage after another happens and it it makes people inured to what is yeah we're almost numb, numb to, numb it. to yep. fundamental challenges to what it means to have a constitutional democracy. So you and I can imagine, you know, the pr- President Trump may be reelected, Bill Barr may stay as attorney general, but if President Trump is not reelected, if Joe Biden is elected and there's a new attorney general, what do you think that attorney general's like th- that's a big job in my mind to be the next attorney general who comes in to sort of clean up the department or or try to uh, clean up may not be a fair word, but re- reset it. You know, it's one of those things where I think it's a huge 
challenge, but I also think it could be incredibly rewarding for the next attorney general. The one thing that when I think about what's going to be needed is I think it's going to be necessary for the department to go above and beyond where it might normally go in terms of transparency and fairness in terms of explaining everything it's doing and being as solicitous as they can be to public concerns and to spelling out how it has addressed those. It reminds me very much of something that I lived through when I was at the FBI with Director Mueller, which was the Edward Snowden revelations. And one of the things that I was very proud of was some of the ways in which the intelligence community responded to that. For instance, there was uniformity in the general counsels being supportive of having outside amicus, having outside lawyers being able to weigh in on novel legal issues before the court that hears national security matters, meaning there needed to be another voice. And I think that mindset is going to be required in the next administration, whenever that is. So one of the points on the amicus, which I really liked, you've written recently about expanding it even beyond where it is today. And I think that's a really interesting way to think about how do we make systems. It's just the instinct in the system is to keep things closed, right? And to keep things private. And I think that to your point, the next attorney general in a new administration would have to push really hard to ask, why are we keeping it private and have much more of an inclination to show their math? Because it's a lot now to ask the public, even if they do the right thing, it's a lot now to basically, part of what we've been seeing is really an eroding of an attack on institutions, including the FBI, including the intelligence community. And so even having a very honorable attorney general, I think doesn't necessarily write the public perception of the institutions as potentially having been harmed. I agree. And I mean, I think this is where, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of Director Mueller. But one of the things that I don't think gets enough attention is the way he ran the FBI is, I think, a very good model for what needs to be done in the, the next administration, which was, I remember going to him with a problem soon after I got there as the general counsel. And I said, look, I have to report something to you. And he said, look, there's no such thing as bad news. There's just news. And what was drilled into you was diagnose the problem, meet it head on. Don't spin, don't color it. Um, You have to be absolutely clear if there's some sort of public statement that needs to be made. It's got to be owning the problem. Come up with a system to figure out how are we going to solve it, and then come up with a system to audit that solution to make sure it's working and just be completely transparent to the extent you can be about what happened and what you're doing. Yeah. Do you think, when you think about, you know, Director Mueller and the next AG, I mean, one of the questions that I think is going to be really important is the existing special counsel regulations, which essentially put the special counsel within the Department of Justice. So, you know, the AG remained the boss over the cases. And we can all, I think, obviously see now that the president appoints the attorney general and that it's a very complicated situation. That was in reaction to the prior special counsel statute, which was created an independent office outside of the Department of Justice, gave that individual a lot of power. And at the time, after sort of, you know, Ken Starr, Whitewater, there was a, a sort of bipartisan feeling that 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 office might be too powerful. And so it pushed back. And then we ended up with the the regulations under which you worked with Director Mueller. What are your thoughts on, like, how should this be thought about? Even what's the process to think about this going forward? That is, it, it is a tough problem. So you, you definitely have the history, right? After Watergate, it was understood that we needed to have an independent counsel law to insulate the prosecution from a Saturday Night Massacre. Then you had Ken Starr and the concern of the independent counsel. Almost upon an election, you immediately had an independent counsel and that it just becomes a huge distraction and that that investigation could start on subject A, but end up, you know, having an investigation on subject Z. And so after Ken Starr, the independent counsel law lapsed. And this was an effort 
And I'm not in any way denigrating that effort because they were reacting to some, what they thought was something that is an abuse and, or, and can be an abuse. So they were trying to mitigate that risk. The problem is, as you've identified, that if you house the special counsel entirely within the Department of Justice, then you are just another DOJ employee. And I think America didn't understand that because when you appoint a special counsel, I think America, the what, what you're really thinking about is that this is going to be like a 9-11 commission. There's going to be an independent report and someone's going to independently tell us what happened. I mean, you might disagree with it. You might think there's bias, et cetera, but that's sort of the nature of the structure. But that's not what the special counsel is. Um, the special counsel rules have somebody within the department just reporting privately in the way any other prosecutor would with some protections, but just reporting privately to the attorney general. And then he or she can decide what to do with that, that report and recommendation. It doesn't have to be public. It doesn't have to go to Congress. Um, you can write a four-page letter about it. I mean, there are all sorts of things that you can right. do. Yes, hypothetically. I do think that there are ways to stiffen the protections of a special counsel provision. And I know there are lots of academics who are focusing on that. In the the book that I, I wrote, I talk about ways that I think it could be stronger. But ultimately, you know, the ultimate call is whether there should just be an independent counsel again. Understanding, by the way, that you could have that structure. Where do you fall on that? Would you Would you favor that? I don't. I don't favor it. And it's, to me, even bearing all of the scars of and seeing the ways it could be abused, I, I think that if you have an independent counsel, you are, you're guaranteeing a high risk of the, the reasons why we, we got rid of that system. And, and I do think there has to be, to me, I, again, I don't think that's I don't think structure that structure is the total answer. I think that there there has to be ways to stiffen up the special counsel to see if that works. But I don't think that that is where I would I would make the the changes. You know, just to your point about the nine eleven commission model. I mean, this is this is a question, and I think it comes back to you mentioned Dr. Fauci and and the situation we're in right now with the coronavirus and COVID. 19. And I have been thinking a lot about this. And I and I think it's really important of thinking about how do you create institutions that can minimize politics when things really matter and just have people who are in the room who are making decisions and providing information to the public in a way that puts bipartisan people in that room to begin with or takes the politics out, which obviously is very hard. It's so sad, though, to have that discussion. I mean, you look at the Federal Reserve and you say, OK, there's this institution that works, but we're supposed to be a democracy. That's not a, a knock on the Federal Reserve. It's that it's unusual to be having a conversation to say, how do we create a system where the abuses of democracy don't play out? Right, because the actual politics of democracy is part exactly. of our system. Right, I agree with that. What we're talking about is how do you deal with the extremes? And I think, to your point, I think a lot of it was norms that we never felt like we were in this position of feeling, you know, I always think about are the processes and the piping strong enough to withhold an abuse of authority, right? And I think that's the conversation right now, the underlying foundation of the democracy. Yes. And that, you know, Justice Breyer asked that question when he said he was concerned in one of the subpoena cases about giving Congress too much power. And he harked back to the McCarthy era. And, you know, I kept on thinking, nothing you do is going to is going to forestall another Joseph McCarthy, that the, the answer to your question is not the way you rule in this case. It's it's not going to stop another red scare and all of the abuses. What the standard was for a congressional subpoena isn't going to be the the answer. The deciding. Yeah. Before we end, let's talk about your book. So you finish your time at the special counsel's office. You come to NYU School of Law as a senior fellow. You take on a number of different projects and you decide to write a book. What is your book about? So the book is about the special counsel's investigation and it took about a year to do. I have to say, I, I learned a lot. It was it was a very interesting process. One of the questions that my editors had was whether I had enough distance on what was happening to to write the book objectively. And I, I think one of the things that the process did was it 
it allowed me to ha- to get that distance and perspective on on what happened. Did you have to go through the process? I mean, we've all heard a lot about John Bolton had to go through this clearance process with the White House um, to make sure that nothing was sensitive. Obviously, the special counsel's investigation. We talked about the skiff. There were there was a lot of sensitive material. Did you go through that pre? Is it pre clearance? It's called. It's called pre publication review. And yes, so I was very aware of that process. And the only reason I can actually talk now at all about this is because I've gone through that process. So it was submitted to both Maine Justice and to the FBI. They read every word of the, the book and gave me comments. So that is now that has now happened. And, and I have in writing that it has been cleared. <laughs> Terrific. And when does the book come out? End of September, September 29th. And obviously, we'd love to have you back to talk about some of the details in the book. I know that we couldn't talk about everything today, but um, what's the title of the book for folks who are looking for it? The title is Where Law Ends. That is part of a quote from John Locke, which is Where Law Ends, Tyranny Begins. And this is this is um, obviously not an uplifting uh, title, um, <laughs> but that phrase where law ends, tyranny begins, is inscribed into the limestone walls of the Department of Justice that you and I spend a lot of time at. Yeah. I mean, in some ways it's not uplifting, but in other ways it is, right? It's it's such a statement of the power of the rule of law and the importance of it. Yeah, absolutely. Let me ask you a very, very important question about your book. Are you hoping that the president tweets at you about it? <laughs> you know, I can honestly say I really hope that the most powerful person in the world has other things to focus on. Yes, understood. Um, and not to be on a high horse, but right now, given COVID, I really would hope that the president of the United States is spending all of his time worried about life and death issues and not an issue about my trying to record for history what happened. And I'm not going to make you take the over under on that. I don't know how I don't know how I would bet actually. You know, Preet and I always talk about we don't want to make predictions. This one, you know, maybe more likely than not, a preponderance of the evidence standard that the president tweets, but it's impossible to know. And I agree with you very much. Thank you so much. It's a, such a pleasure to have you here with us and to be able to talk talk with you about all of your experiences and just really the wealth of information you have and and your service to the country. And it's my pleasure. My conversation with Andrew Weissman continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To hear the special bonus Insider for free, head to cafe.com slash brief and sign up to receive a link. That's cafe.com slash brief. Thank you to all the insiders. Thank you for supporting our work.